Good morning, everyone. We're going to continue our study in the book of James this morning, looking at another mark of spiritual maturity. And the passage we're looking at is James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. This is what James, the brother of Jesus, has to say. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. I remember when God first directed me to propose engagement to Rebecca. And it was a very intimidating time, as you could imagine. And it was such a big life decision. I remember I was stressing about how I was going to propose to her. And I realized quickly that for me to propose to her, I had to buy something first. I had to buy, as you can guess, an engagement ring. And this process of buying an engagement ring became very stressful. Uh, Here I was, a young guy, not that into jewelry. Um, I had to spend tons of money on a ring that displays how much I love this woman. Talk about pressure. And, And I remember the biggest challenge that I had during this time is being able to tell the difference between a real diamond and a fake diamond. I had no categories, I had no understanding, I had nothing for me to realize if I was buying something that was real or if I was buying something that was fake. And this intimidating question really began to challenge me. And every diamond I looked at in this process basically led me to question its authenticity. I asked and pondered and questioned if this diamond was truly real. And what James is doing in this passage of Scripture 
is actually calling us to do the very same thing. He's calling us to look at our lives and look at our faith and our trust in God. And and he's asking us to begin questioning and challenging and pondering and ask this very intimidating question, how do I know my faith in God is real? Now, this question we, we struggle with because naturally we, we want to think we have a real faith. Uh, we, we don't want to challenge it anyway. No, none of us want to admit that we struggle with faith. Uh, we read passages of Scripture like this, and we, we just want to skim it and pass on by. We want to keep reading because we think, well, maybe I'm a Christian already. I have faith in God. I don't need to hear this. And honestly, as we approach this passage today, that is my same temptation. Let's just pause together and allow this text to read over us. Because in skimming over it and ignoring it, we're not going to receive the word that God has for us. And so my invitation to you as we continue this morning is let's truly pause and hear from the word of the Lord. And what God is going to put us before us this morning is this understanding of the difference between a real faith, a living faith, and a dead faith. And this is what James begins to describe what a dead faith looks like. How do we define what a dead faith is? And this is what James says. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, without giving them the things that they needed for the body, he says, what good is that? And James begins to to put us into the story of knowing someone who is struggling in life. Uh, They're struggling even with the basic necessities of food and clothing. And here's what you do. You go to that person and you go to them and say, I know this is a really difficult situation you're going through. And I hope things that get better for you. And you know what? I'm even going to pray for you. I'm going to pray that someone would provide some food and clothing for you. And so I want you to experience the peace of God. But for now, I hope things get better for you. See you later. And James says, what is that? That doesn't accomplish anything. You have not helped that person in any way. That doesn't address the needs that they have. That doesn't change their circumstances or situation. That doesn't help them at all. And so James comes to this question. He says, what good is that? In other words, what does that accomplish? See, what he's doing is saying all that is in reality is a dead faith. It's a trust in God that doesn't change anything around you. And here's the thing James wants us to realize by giving us this picture, is he says that what words can do is serve me, but works actually serve someone else. 
You see, when I express words and I express my care and concern and thoughts and prayers for someone and I, I simply just send verbal vocabulary someone some way, what that does for me is make me feel like I'm caring about them. Uh, we see this on social media all the time when tragedy strikes or when hard things come and you write a little comment, uh, my prayers are with you, my thoughts are with you, uh, I care about you. And yet what happens? How does anything change? It doesn't. And James says, you know what? Words may make you feel good about yourself, but he says actually doing something. Working is what actually changes someone else's situation. And so he goes on to this concept. He says, what good is that? He says, faith by itself that does not have works. In other words, if, if you trust God and yet you don't allow God to transform your life to where you're living out the way he wants you to do, it's basically dead. And so quiz time. Uh, what do dead people do? It's not a trick question. The answer is obvious. Dead people do nothing. And this is what James says. He says, well, what does dead faith do? Dead faith does nothing. In other words, we give verbal assent to God and relationship with him, but it doesn't actually change anything about our life. And so here's the bottom thing. Here's what James says. He says, simply having a verbal belief in God or even a cognitive assent to God or, or even an intellectual concept of God, James says none of that is enough. Belief in God is not enough. Theology itself is not enough. Knowing the right religious words and language is not enough. Real faith, James says, actually changes things. And this is how intense James says this point. He says this in verse 19 of chapter 2. He says, you believe that God is one. And what he's reminding them is an ancient Shema tradition that they would recite where they said, hear, O Lord, O Israel, your God is one. And James is saying, even that verbal assent that you would say every morning and every night as a Jew, he says, that means nothing in and of itself. Why? Because even the demons believe that. And it actually shudders, it terrifies them. And James is saying, do you know that demons actually have good theology and yet it doesn't change anything about them? See, belief in God is one, is the center of everything we are and who we are as the people of God. And James is not saying that theology in and of itself is unimportant, but what he is saying, and by itself, it means nothing. It's not enough. And it's fascinating to me when you read through the gospel accounts of Jesus. Guess who in the stories in the gospel accounts recognize who Jesus is? See, Jesus spent all the time with the disciples. Did they figure out who he was? Jesus spent all this time preaching to the crowds. Did they fully know who he was? Uh, Jesus spent all this time with religious leaders. Did they truly know who he was? Jesus even spent all this time with his family. But did they know 
who he truly was. See, what's fascinating to me when we read Scripture, the gospel accounts, we see it's the demons who actually have the greatest theological statements about who Jesus is. Uh, let me give you some examples from the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Mark 1.34 says this. It says, Jesus would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Uh, Mark 5, we see this demon legion crying out to Jesus, and they said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In Luke 4, we see there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice. He said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And later on, it says, demons also came out of many, saying, you are the Son of God. And Jesus rebuked them because they knew that he was the Christ, the Messiah. And, and so what we have in Scripture is a realization that even the demonic world knows the person and identity of who Jesus is. They know that he is God. And yet they do not submit to them. They do not live in obedience to God. They do not live any sense of loving God. And so theological knowledge is not enough. And A.W. Tozer, who's a, a famous pastor, theologian, he, he says this. It's a quite a profound thought. He says, the devil is a better theologian than any of us and is a devil still. Uh, what is Tozer getting? What is James getting at? It's reminding us that that simple knowledge of God is not an end to itself. Knowledge of God is a means to an end. Knowledge of God should bring transformation and change. You, you can't have a knowledge of God and not allow it to change you. You can't know Jesus and not love him. You, you can't know Jesus as a God and not submit to him. Otherwise, you are simply nothing more than acknowledging what a demon does. See, Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says relating to him and acknowledging who he is is not simply just about theoretical knowledge. It is about having our very life transformed by him. And so how do we define it? If that's an image of dead faith, if an image of dead faith is simply ignoring any command that God has given us to love our neighbors, if it's simply living with theoretical knowledge of God, but living like a demon in the sense that nothing is transformed in our life, we're not living in submission to God, we fear him, but it doesn't change us, then how do we know what real faith is? If that's dead faith, what does real faith look like? And this is where James brings up two people. 
He brings up two stories, uh, a story of Abraham and a story of Rahab. And the story of Abraham is a fascinating one because the story of the Abraham is one where all the promises of God to Abraham were literally about to be killed. And God calls Abraham, here's the story, God calls Abraham to, to launch his plan of rescue and redemption, to bless the nations, to be a light to the whole world through Abraham's family. But there's a problem. Abraham doesn't have any offspring. He doesn't have a son. And his wife is old and elderly and barren and can't bear a child. And so there's this issue that arises. But after decades of waiting, a miracle happens. And Isaac is born, son of Abraham, this miraculous baby. And yet that wouldn't be the greatest test of Abraham. The greatest test of Abraham's faith actually comes later where God calls Abraham to take his beloved son and to sacrifice him. Now, from Abraham's perspective, this makes no sense. Why would God promise something and then simply take it away? And yet, this is where we hear Abraham's faith in this story. This is why James brings up Abraham. Uh, This is a story that comes from Genesis 22, and I want to just point out some insights of faith that Abraham showed. Listen to this. When they reached the mountain, Abraham told his servant, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. And what we see in this text is that Abraham includes both he and Isaac returning back to the servant. Interesting. But here's another insight of Abraham's faith. Well, we see Isaac ask the question. As they are heading towards the altar, Isaac knows a sacrifice is about to take place. And Isaac asks Abraham, he says, well, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? We haven't got the lamb yet. And Abraham says something fascinating to Isaac. He says, God himself will provide a lamb. And so already from the narrative, it seems as though Abraham prepared himself to do what God had asked, to be faithful And yet he still expected something else to happen. And we get some more insight in this when we go to the the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 11, it gives us some insights to Abraham's thoughts in the story. And this is what it says in Hebrews 11, 19. It says, he considered, talking about Abraham, He considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. Fascinating. And so Abraham had such a profound faith in God that he knew not even death could take away the promises of God to be fulfilled in Isaac. 
And instead of resurrection that we see there, Abraham was spared the sacrifice. And later on in the story of salvation, we would realize that the sacrifice of the Son would fall on Jesus, the Son of God himself. Abraham expressed this faith that was so illogical, that made no sense in the time, that he couldn't fathom in the moment, and yet he trusted that God could accomplish anything to fulfill his purposes. The next story we see that James brings up is the story of Rahab. And this is what James says. He says, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. And so what was, what was it that Rahab did to have this profound experience of faith? Well, her story is told in Joshua 2. And it's the story where Rahab has this conversion experience of coming to faith in Yahweh, worshiping the true God. And she was living in the city of Jericho. And we have these Jewish spies come into the city of Jericho and she identified with people and she actually hid some of those spies to protect them from the king and the military powers trying to find them and kill them. And in protecting and hiding those spies, she was literally risking her life. She was risking everything. Why? Out of a love for others a love for God's people. And she didn't just say in the moment, I, I trust that the Lord will provide for you. I trust that the Lord will keep you safe. Um, good luck getting out of town. I hope you escape. No, she did something. She risked her very life. And, and here's the point with James, with, with telling the story of Abraham and Rahab. He's saying, belief Trust in God must turn to action. Faith will always produce this life-changing love for God. Faith will always produce a life-changing love for others. That is the nature of true faith. It's a love for God and a love for others. And this is what the reformer John Calvin said. He says, yes, faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. In other words, yes, it's God and his grace and his mercy and his salvation, of the gift of salvation that he brings to us and our response in trusting and having faith in what God has done that brings justification. That's how we are made right with God. But what James is bringing up here is saying, you can have a relationship with God but it's going to transform you. It's going to change you. And that faith that you express in God is going to be shown in how much you love him and how much you love others. Just in the way that Abraham loved God so much that he was willing to sacrifice anything for God. And just in the way that Rahab loved others so much out of her love for God that she was willing to sacrifice her own life. True faith, real faith, is always shown in a love for God 
and a love for others. And, and Jane, uh, John argues the same thing. In, in 1 John chapter 4, he says this. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's an intense statement, isn't it? Anyone who does not love does not know God. See, here's what's interesting. When we look at the concept of love in our culture, uh, we would say that many people are, are loving or they're kind or they're nice to many around them. But here's where the true test of faith really comes. Uh, Jesus comes at us and he says, you know what? The first and greatest commandment is love your God. And then he says the second is like it. Go love your neighbor as yourself. And here's where the love of God gets extremely radical. Jesus goes on to say, you need to love your enemies. What does that look like? And, and so Jesus comes at us and he says, you know what? The love that you're supposed to show to everyone in this world is going to look extremely radical. The love that you're supposed to show is not just to your neighbor, but to your enemy. And if you don't express that kind of love, then you don't know God. And this is the story of the gospel, is that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us out of love. If that's the story, if that's the character, if that's the purpose of the mission of God, and we don't live in light of that, it shows that we truly don't understand God. And this is how James closes. This is how bold he gets once again. He says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead. In other words, when the soul, when the spirit leaves, the, the ruach, the life-breathing force is apart from the body, that body becomes lifeless. That body becomes dead. And James says, so faith apart from works is dead. In other words, faith that is not animated by this love for God and this love for neighbor and even a love for enemies is a dead faith. It's dead. And so we need to come again to the scripture. And we need to allow it to do what God wants it to do in our lives is this is an incredibly challenging and confrontational text one that truly provides an essence for which we define real faith see it's interesting going back to my my study of diamonds and and how do i know if a diamond was real as i was looking to buy one for my fiance 
Uh, one of the things that I began to realize is, yeah, you study clarity and you study color and you study cuts and all these things. But something that was fascinating to me is one of the ways to tell the real diamond versus the fake diamond is how it projects light. And a way that a, a, cubic, a cubic zirconium rock and a, a real true diamond, the way they filter light and display light is incredibly different. And it's the same way when we look at our lives. Well, if we want to be people who have a real faith, we're going to show the light of Christ in a very specific way. A way that shows love in all circumstances to all people. The love of Christ that goes beyond logic, that goes beyond practicality, that goes beyond simple easiness. This is the love that God has called us to. And so to close our time together, I want us to go into a time of contemplation. And what I'm going to invite us to do together is begin realizing ways to practice this. How, how do we engage? How do we ask ourselves? How do we even confront ourselves if we have a true, truly real faith? And, and I'm going to bring up 22 questions. It sounds like a lot, but I'm going to walk through them. 22 questions. And where these 22 questions come from is a guy named John Wesley. And he was part of a movement at Oxford called the Holy Club. And they were engaging at the time the question, how do I know my faith is real? How do I know if I'm simply going through the motions? How do I know if I'm simply living out religious duty? How do I know if I actually have a relationship with God? How do I know that my faith is true? And what they would do is ask each other in this club 22 questions. And these were signposts. These were dictators. These were guidelines to question whether their faith was truly real. And so wherever you're at, I'm going to invite you just to bow your heads. This is going to be a time of contemplation. And all I'm going to do is read those questions over you. And as I go through these questions, all I want you to do for now is simply say yes or no. Simply to acknowledge this is something you have to wrestle with in life. And so bow your heads. This, this is going to be our time of contemplation. And allow these questions to wash over you and the Holy Spirit to guide you to convict you, to instruct you on what real faith looks like. So here's question one. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Am I honest in all my acts or words or do I exaggerate? Do I confidently pass on to another what was told to me in confidence? Can I be trusted? Am I a slave to dress, friends, work, 
or habits? Am I self-conscious, self-pitying, or self-justifying? Did the Bible live in me today? Do I give it time to speak to me every day? Am I enjoying prayer? When did I last speak to someone else about my faith? Do I pray about the money I spend? Do I get to bed on time and get up on time? Do I disobey God in anything? Do I insist upon doing something about which my conscience is uneasy? Am I defeated in any part of my life? Am I jealous, impure, critical, irritable, touchy, or distrustful? How do I spend my spare time? Am I proud? Do I thank God that I am not as other people, especially as the Pharisees who despise the publican? Is there anyone whom I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, hold a resentment towards or disregard? If so, what am I doing about it? Do I grumble or complain constantly? And finally, question 22. Is Christ real to me? I don't know where you answered yes and where you answered no and all those questions. But what they'll begin to do is to work in your heart and to challenge you and convict you is my faith truly real. And so I pray that as you go into this week, that you would be mindful of the questions that really struck you. You'd be mindful of the things that the Holy Spirit is wanting you to address in your life and that you would truly express a faith that is real.